Let's get to God's word. We're going to continue our series in Ephesians. And so let's hear the word of the Lord. Chapters 1, verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. This ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of our God, may it stand forever. You, you may be seated. Well, we're continuing this now, um, our step-by-step systematic process, moving through the book of Ephesians. And this morning, while we read verses 3 through 6, um, and we will be in 3 through 6 for the course of the next three weeks, this morning we will focus pretty much only on verses 4 and 5. But that's where we're, we're going this morning. This passage is uh, dealing with some deep and significant truths. You know, there, there, are, there are truths in life that um, there's information that, are, that helps you understand the whole, that helps you understand the larger story. If an investigator, if an investigative journalist is seeking to understand what is going on in some sort of uh, government process or some sort of business, it helps for them to have an inside view, a view from behind the curtain. And that is what we get in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. You know, in the, in the, if you remember back at Woodward and Bernstein, one of the ways in which they were able to piece together what was going on in the Nixon administration administration was they had a witness named Deep Throat who was able to pull back the curtain and give a perspective, not from those who didn't know what was going on, who were merely reacting to it, but those who were bringing about the action. They were able to piece together the facts of the story because of this witness. And in much the same way, C.S. Lewis in his um, children's uh, books called The Chronicles of Narnia one of the, a number of the characters there in explaining to these young children what is going on in Narnia will say the often will speak often about what was key called the secrets from the dawn of time. That there are various things within larger the larger story of our lives, that there are things that are going on behind the surface that are foundational that we may not think about every day when we get up. It doesn't seem to play into necessarily our day in and day out. But in order to understand where we are and where we are going, it is incredibly helpful to know about these deep secrets from the dawn of time that are helpful for piecing together the narrative of our lives, our suffering and our hopes and our challenges in life. And this morning in verses 4, we come for Christians to one of the deepest possible backgrounds, a peek behind the veil of God's will, a peek behind the curtains of eternity and time into the very mind and heart and plans of God. What we are diving into is the deep background, the deep mystery, and the secrets from before the dawn of time that will help us in responding to life, the here and now. So here's the message of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. I'm going to put it in my own words. It'll sound similar to what we even just read, though. The message of Ephesians 1, 3 through 6 says this, that God has chosen, God does the choosing, God has chosen those whom he will save, and those he has chosen... He predestined to make them holy, blameless, and adopted, and he has done all this for his own glory. That God has chosen those whom he will save. 
the choice of God before the foundation of the world is probably not something that we think about each and every day. We don't get out of bed and just hop up and what we think about what's going to get us through the day is going, you know what, I'm just so glad to think about what God did there before time began and how he chose. That is not something that necessarily enters into our mind on a daily basis. This is not on the edge of our consciousness. But this deep truth that is behind the veil that Paul provides us from God's perspective over time and eternity is critical, though, for providing us and undergirding those promises that we hold most dear in the Christian life. The promises that he will always be with us and he will never forsake us and that he is going to lead us home. These things that give us hope and life in the midst of suffering and difficulty, it is undergirded by the truth that we hear of today. And so it's of enormous importance. Now, as we penetrate into the difficult subject of God choosing that God has chosen some to be in Christ and to save them, and he has not chosen others, I want you to recognize that we are um, moving into the deep areas of truth. And, and, under, and with these foundational truths, to put it graphically, we often, as Christians, it's like a truth that is like a, law, a large, raw piece of meat that we choke on, that it is difficult to get our teeth into and to pull on. And so my job and my hope for the next two weeks is that I might be able to cook this down a bit in such a way that we can chew on this great and enormous and significant truth of God choosing us in such a way that we can glean from it its sweetness and its nourishment for our daily life. And so here's where we're going the next couple of weeks. We're going to be in such the same outline for two weeks in a row. First, we're going to deal with the fact of something. We're going to talk about what the text says. It says this. Then I'm going to deal with the varied interpretations within Christian history on, on that particular idea. So this week we're going to be looking at God's choice. Next week we're going to be looking at God's will and his purposes. And so we're going to look at God, the different interpretations, and then I'm going to try to draw the implications of what the Bible says down into a practical truth for us. This week I'm going to deal with some of the more, let's say, exegetical uh, issues with this idea of God choosing us, and next week I'll deal with a little bit more of the emotional and the philosophical issues. But here's where we're going this morning. We're going to be focusing on God's choice, that he is the grand chooser. Three points for you. First, we're going to look at the fact of God's choice. Second, we'll look at the interpretations of God's choice. And then lastly, we'll look at the confidence that comes because of God's choice. So first, let's look at the fact. The clear statement of the Bible is that you are a Christian today, that you are saved today and into eternity, not because of any choice or act that you have made, but because God, before the foundation of the world, sets you apart and shows you for salvation. The Bible has given us many illustrations of choosing, many places from the beginning and the end where we see that God is the chooser and calling people out. For example, let me just give a number of these. Abraham was a pagan living uh, separate from God, serving other gods. And it says in Genesis 12 that God chose Abraham and brought him to himself to create and call out a people, a family for God's own possession. And Isaiah, Isaac, he has two sons. And the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 9, we're going to look at this a couple times this morning. But Paul tells us that God made a choice between these two sons, Jacob and Esau, in order that God's purpose in election 
We're about to make an election decision between two candidates for president. God makes a selection between these two sons as to who will be his and who will not. Romans 9, verse 11 and 12 says, Though they, not yet born, this is Jacob and Esau, had done nothing, neither good or bad, but in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she, it's Rebecca, their mother, was told the older that's Esau, will serve the younger. God's choice as to who will serve the other. Israel, and God chose Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, it says this. God says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Why? Why are they holy? Why are they set apart? Because the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Jesus is called God's chosen Messiah. And Jesus, in fact, goes, turns around and chooses others. Jesus chooses his disciples. He tells them in John 15, 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Mark 13, which is a bizarre passage, but talks multiple times about the elect, the select of God. It says this in Mark 13, 20, 22, and 27. Let me just read through these verses quickly. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, and who are the elect? Whom he chose. The elect are those he chose. He shortened the days. It's talking about these days of evil in Mark 13. Then in verse 22, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead away, if possible, the elect. The implication being it's not possible to lead away the elect. And then in verse 27, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect, those he's selected from the four winds. That means God has a people that he has chosen for himself, that he has selected from all corners of the world. This idea of God's choosing continues throughout much of the New Testament. Colossians 3.12 says this, put on then as who? God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. The church there, church there is described as chosen ones. And 1 Peter 2.9, can you guess which word is going to be in this passage? 1 Peter 2.9 says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God says, I'm going to set you apart. I have claimed you as my possession. And even what we see in the New Testament is even those who are not yet part of the church, but Paul says will become part of the church, they are called the elect. And Paul says, that's why I work to share the gospel. He says this in 2 Timothy 2.10, Therefore I endure everything. He's in jail. He's experiencing suffering. I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. He's looking to those who he does not know. He doesn't know them by name yet. But he's saying that there are those out there who God has set apart. He has elected to save. And I have the great joy in my suffering to be the means by which they come to know Jesus. And so the overwhelming testimony of the whole Bible is that God is the chooser. That God is the one who makes the choice. And understand that, that this idea of God choosing is a biblical fact. It is a fact of the Bible. And the Bible forces us to actually come face to face with this idea. Now, this is an idea, the idea that God would choose some to salvation and not choose others. This doctrine is a difficult one for people to get their minds around and to get their emotions around. But understand this, that no one denies that there is a choice occurring. And that it occurred. It says in Ephesians 1.4 that this choice by God occurred 
before the foundation of the world. The debate comes around this question. What was God choosing? Or who was God choosing? Or what was the meaning of God's choice? And to this question, Christians have had varied views throughout the ages. This teaching on God's choice to uh, choose some and set them aside for salvation and not choose others has drawn out significant debate. It is often very heated debate in the history of the church. Some have a visceral negative response to the idea that God has chosen, that some are to receive blessings and others are not chosen to receive blessings. And indeed, this is not something that I uh, relish necessarily to bring forth because it does come with so much debate. But this is why we walk through the Bible verse by verse, text by text, and book by book. We often will do topical subjects, but the meat of our preaching and teaching is to come to the Word and to preach about what it says so that your cowardly pastor can't avoid things he doesn't necessarily want to talk about. But I want to talk about this if we can get past the debate issues because it is so important for your life. We cannot run from this. And we must deal with the fact that it actually says that a choice was made and it was made before the foundations of the earth. We cannot think ourselves as being beyond or above these discussions. So there, are some, there are some who will look at those of us who want to debate and actually look hard at the scriptures about this and say that that is divisive and spiritually immature. And indeed, Paul says, run away from unnecessary debates. And yet Paul is the one who brings these things up, so he must not think that this is in the list of unnecessary debates. And so we need to understand both one another and the very interpretations but even more importantly, we want to understand the Word of God and apply it to our lives. And so that end, I want to now engage in some alternative interpretations. I'm saying that I believe the biblical interpretation is that God chose us without any foresight as to our choosing Him, but He chose us and set us apart before the foundation of the world. Now, there are two alternative interpretations to this view that I want to provide you, and then I want to rebut them. <laughs> Alternative interpretation one, it's this, that God didn't choose individuals to be saved, but he chose or elected Christ, and then it is our job to believe in Christ and get into him. In other words, he's saying Jesus is the car that he selects, and it's you and my job to get into the car. The classic biblical interpretation is that he not only chose Christ as the car that's going to get you to heaven, but he also chose the individuals that will be in the car. Now this view states that God chose and elected Jesus, but he did not choose the individuals who would believe. They say that God did not choose to make us to be in Jesus. And so what they have in view here in Ephesians 1.4 is it said he chose us in Christ. They want to hone in on that in Christ component. But what they do in this view is they put the onus still on the individual person to get themselves and connect themselves with Christ. Now, I want to rebut this from the scriptures itself, that this is that what the Bible actually is talking about when it talks about choosing an election is that God, when it says here that God chose us before the foundation of the earth, is that he is thinking and choosing specific individuals whom he has chosen to save. And I, I, I say that because one in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, it doesn't say that God chose Jesus before the foundation of the world. 
It says, quite literally in the grammar, he chose us to be in Jesus. The object of God's choosing here is us, is the church, and we are in Christ. The other component of this view that I want to push and go against and show is that the vast majority of the times in the scriptures where we see this idea of God choosing is that he chooses not Jesus, and then we have to get ourselves in him, but he chooses us to be in Jesus. He chooses individuals. Let me give just a a series of passages as examples of God's choosing individuals. First one is this, 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 through 31. Follow along with me. Paul says this, For consider your calling, brothers. Now, so he's saying, you were called. Why were you called? Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what? What is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, speaking about God's Father, the God the Father choosing the weak, the foolish, the despised, because of his choosing, you are in Christ, it says there in verse 30. Behind this calling is a divine choosing of God. I choose the weak and the lowly and the foolish. I chose the low, not the great. I chose the foolish, not the wise. I chose the weak, not the strong. This is God pointing out specific people, the weak, the low, the foolish, so that no one can boast. God chooses, and he chooses to put us in Christ. The the object of his choosing and his electing is to get us in Christ. That's the goal. That's why he chooses. Let me look at another example. Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 12. Again, we come back to that example of the two brothers. And let me give it context. Paul in Romans 9 is addressing concerns that Israel has rejected Christ and therefore that they are not going to receive all those promises of the Old Testament. And so people are rising up and they're asking questions like, okay, God made these promises to Israel. Now they're not happening for Israel. Was God a liar? Has God not kept his word? And here's how Paul responds in verse 6. He said, But it is not as though God's word has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Here's the point. Here's what he's saying. It's not that God's promises to Israel has failed. It's that not everybody that you think is Israel is Israel. That there is a physical Israel, those who are are physically born of a descendant of an Israelite. And then there is what he would consider a spiritual Israelite, one who is called to himself. He goes on. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but it is the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. In other words, Paul is saying that the issue is not with God's promise failing. It's with the, who we understand to be Israel. Israel is those who believed and trusted in Jesus. And so he goes on to give an illustration of his point. How you can be born as an Israelite, but not be a true Israelite. And he brings up, he starts in verse 9. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were, that's the children, were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the younger or the older will serve the younger. 
You see, Paul's illustration here, he's saying, Jacob was chosen to be a true Israelite. Esau was not. In order that God's purpose of election might continue. And what I want to bring you back to the point I'm trying to push here is that when it talks about God's choosing, he's choosing Jacob, not Esau. It is an individual election by name. And so the promises are not for those he has not chosen, but it's for those he has chosen. And in this case, the selection was Jacob, not Esau. Now, speaking of names, let's go to Revelation chapter 13, verses 7 through 8. This is example 3. Revelation 13 is talking about this beast who is working for the kingdom of the evil one against God's people. It's Revelation, so I know it has beasts. Just ignore the dragon in the corner for a second so we can get to our points, if you would. Okay. So it says this in verse 7. Also it, the beast, was allowed to make war on the saints to conquer them, and authority was given it, that's the beast, given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. So now we're talking about those who worship the beast. Everyone, here's who worships the beast, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So who worships the beast? Those whose names, individual, individual human beings, their names were not written in the Lamb's book of life, which infers that who are those who don't worship the beast but instead worship the Messiah? Those whose names, specific individual names, are written in the Lamb's book of life. And when were those names written? Before the foundation of the world. All right, two more examples really quickly. John 17, verse 6. Jesus says to his disciples in his prayer to God the Father, says, I have manifested your name, praying to God the Father. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. These are individuals that he's thinking of. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. They were already gods in some sense, and God the Father gave them by name to God the Son. We see the same idea happening in John chapter 6. We're going to look at verse 37, 44, and 65, and here's what it says. Same concept. All the Father gives me will come to me. These are specified individuals, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Verse 44, no one No one, individuals, no one will come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then verse 65, and he said this, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Time and time again, what God's choosing means, God's gifting to Jesus are those who he has selected, elected, chosen from before the foundation of the world to be in Christ. And therefore, I would say that this alternative view is incorrect. That this idea that God simply chose Jesus and it's our job to get ourselves in Jesus is not what it means for God to have done choosing. His choosing means he looked at you before the foundation of the world and said, I'm going to put you in the salvation bus that is Jesus. I'm choosing you to ride in him. Here's the second alternative interpretation. Are you with me? We hear everybody just dead now? Are we just glazed over? Alternative interpretation number two. That God's choosing, to try to understand what it means for God to choose, God's choosing, his electing, was based on foreknowing our future faith. Foreknowing our future faith. Let me see where those who hold this view, they get it from Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. Here's what that says. And we know 
that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Why do all things work together for good? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. You notice that this is similar logic to what we saw in Ephesians 1.4. It says, he chose us in him to be holy and blameless. And because he chose us, he predestined us to be adopted. So choosing leads to predestining us for holiness and blamelessness and adoption. And in the same way we see here in Romans 8, for knowing leads to choosing leads to predestined end for us. And so the key word that they point to there is this word for new. And the interpretation of those who hold this view is that that word for new or for know is that God in foreknowing what he did is he looked through the annals of history, the corridors of time, and God cognitively acknowledges those who will believe. That he, if I could put it in very um, pedantic terms, not to, not to um, downplay the argument, but to just kind of make it clear for us. It's as if there's, let's say there's 30 billion people that live in the history of the world, and that everybody who believes in Jesus has a little prayer emoji above their head. And God looked through the annals and the corridors of time and he says he can see all the people who have the prayer emoji above their head. And he goes, I'm going to choose you and you and you because they have the prayer emoji above their head. Because they have already expressed faith in God he sees in history. And that God foreknows that he consciously can see, okay, these are the people that have faith. And so I'm going to choose them and pull them out. And I'm going to predestine them for these spiritual blessings of blamelessness and holiness and adoption. This, I also believe, is a wrong view um, held by loving, wonderful Christians. But let me um, rebut this view. Hopefully, um, you'll you'll see clearly from Scripture that the crux of this is coming from, um, I believe, a misunderstanding as to how we're going to understand that word for no. That the word foreknow does not mean that God simply cognitively recognizes, like a teacher who can see out in the crowd which kid has their hand up. But foreknowing means something far more, or knowing in relational terms in the scriptures is far more significant than simply cognitively recognizing or seeing somebody. Let me give you a list of passages through the scriptures as to how God understands knowing. Here's the first place time we see no used. In Genesis 4, verse 1, it says this, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived. Okay, there's knowing, and then there's a knowing that leads to the birth of a child. I would, everybody want to go with the fact that those are two different ideas. That if we would be in deep trouble if every time a man looked at a woman and acknowledged her existence, that she ended up having a child. We would say that would lead to some simply some bizarre, explosive population growth. That there is a knowing here that is covenantal and is deeply relational to say that one knows his wife. We continue to see this. Genesis 18. In Genesis 18, verse 19, God is looking over Sodom and Gomorrah. He's hanging out with Abraham. He says, He's about to tell Abraham, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And God has a conversation with himself. And he says, should I tell Abraham what I'm about to do? And here's what it says in verse 19. Why should I tell Abraham, he says, for I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. The word there for chosen in the Hebrew language is the word yada, which in the vast majority of the times in which it is interpreted, what it literally means is to know. In other words, in the Hebrew language, chosen 
and known are synonymous. Known means you have been chosen. We see this in other places. The, spe- the special relationship of being known by God. Amos 3, chapter 3, verse 2. It says this. This is the prophet, God speaking through the prophet to the people of Israel. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Now, now when it says that God knows all the families of the earth, does that mean that, it only, that God only knows Israel? Does that mean God hasn't cognitively seen and doesn't know about all the other families of the earth, all the other nations? No, there's a special knowing here. There's something, I have, I have a relationship with you that is different, that is set apart We see the same idea in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, when God calls Jeremiah to be his prophet. He says this to Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you, and I appointed you a prophet to the nations. That word consecrated or sanctified means to be set apart. And why was Jeremiah set apart? Because God had known him. Does that mean that God was simply cognizant that Jeremiah would exist? No. It means he had set him apart for a special, he had chosen him. I knew you, I chose you, and so I set you apart for this task. 2 Timothy 2, verses 19. We now move to the New Testament. It says this, God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. Now does that mean that, again, you're, getting, you're seeing the redundancy of this, right? Does that mean that God is not aware of everyone else who is not his people? No. He knows. He's cognizantly aware of them. He can see them. But what this means is there's something special in his sense of knowing, relational connection to these people. And then lastly, one last example, Matthew 7, verse 23, it says this. Jesus is saying this in the Sermon on the Mount, saying that there are those who say, Lord, Lord, but they're not actually connected to Jesus. And so he says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And again, when Jesus says to somebody, I never knew you, he doesn't mean I never knew about you. I never noticed you. I didn't see you. I had no intellectual sense that you existed. Instead, what Jesus is saying is I had no relationship, no saving relationship with you. Therefore, the biblical weight of biblical um, what we see the way the biblical argument is that the word know in regards to God and his people is God, when he says he foreknew, is not simply acknowledging that there are people in the corridors of history that will have faith, but it's saying that his knowing is a setting apart. It's a choosing. It's a connecting himself in a special relationship with these people. That he knows them in this way and sets them apart. And it's because he has set them apart that we see in their life that they will believe and come to him. So the stronger biblical argument is that for no is not simply God's awareness, but it's God's act of choosing. And that when he does this choosing, and this is part of the difficult part of this doctrine, that when he does this choosing, it is a choice from among a group of people. He is selecting some and not selecting others. In fact, the way the word chose or choose in the New Testament is almost always used in this context. For example, in Luke 6, verse 13, it says this, And when day came, Jesus called his disciples and chose from from them the twelve that he named apostles. In other words, Jesus is looking at a group of people called his disciples, four or five hundred people, and he says, I'm going to choose twelve 
I'm not choosing those other 488. I'm choosing these 12. The same thing happens in Acts 1. In Acts chapter 6, the way the word choose is again used there. That seven men were set apart to be ministers of the gospel. That means the other men were not chosen for the role of deacon. In Acts 15, Peter in Acts 15 is saying that he was specifically chosen by God to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And so what I want you to see is that the word choose in the scriptures is to select from among a group. And the Bible was covered from head to toe with this teaching. So that when God formed and created all of creation and all of humanity, that he chose from among the group of humanity those whom he will save. He set them apart. Not based on any decision he sees them making in the future, but simply because of his choice. Now, all of that is really crunchy. So I'm going to try to press this down into some beauty. I want you to see first in the, the beauty of God's choice here. And we have to get kind of on the nerdy level. Ephesians 1.4 in that word choose. It is a verb. And it is a verb that is what we call in the middle voice. The middle voice. And the middle voice is a voice of personal interest. What it means is this. Is that the person doing the action is personally invested what it means is when God chooses, it is a personal act by God. Do you understand the power and the weight of that? We tend to, to think of God, even if you're somebody who believes in God's choosing you before the foundation of the world, as if it was an impersonal act of some theistic God who's nameless and faceless. But do you understand what this is saying? It's saying this was a personal act by God that he set you apart. This was a loving act by God that he set you apart and chose you for himself before the foundation of the world. And when did he do it? He did it before you had done anything to deserve it, good or bad. 1 Corinthians 2.7 says, But we impart a secret in hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed when? Before the ages for our glory. 2 Timothy 1.9 says the same thing. God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus when? Before the ages began. So it means God put his love on you, his personal affection upon you. And you are a Christian today, not because of anything that you, because you deserved it, not because you did anything, not because you chose God, but because he personally, affectionately chose you. And let me continue to press this in to our third point, to some application. This should give us incredible confidence. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking in depth at what God's choice destines us for, namely holiness, blamelessness, and adoption. We see that in verse 4 and 5. And we'll see the implications of God's choosing there. But I don't want to wait two weeks or even a week. So this week and next week, what I want to give is just at the end, I want to give one bit of application or one or two bits of application. What I want you to, to draw out the application to press this truth in for you this morning is found at the very, very end, a little prepositional phrase in verse 4. It says this, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. And here's the prepositional phrase. Where are we? Before him. What that means is you are made holy and blameless in the presence of God. In the next verse, he's going to say he predestined you for adoption. Where? To himself. To be with him. 
God shows you so that you can stand before him holy and righteous and as his child to be with him and in his presence and understanding that this is what God has longed for and it's what he's always longed for. And therefore, the story of the Bible and the plan of the redemption is that God, from before time began, has always been the pursuer because he wants to be with us. The reason he chose you because, is because he wants to be with you. The reason he comes after you is because he wants to be with you, to have you near him. When Adam and Eve sinned, the very first thing that they do, what do they do? Do they go running to God? No, they run and they hide. But what does God do for them? He goes and runs after them. He finds them. He seeks them in their fallen condition. And he initiates. God is always the one who initiates with sinners. Always. Romans 3.11 says, no one seeks God. No one. Understand that when it says no one, it means no one. It means mean there's exceptions. Ephesians 2 says we were dead in our sin without any inclination for God. And not, we're not taking, we weren't taking the smallest step towards him. So what did he do? He took all the steps towards us. He came running. God moves towards us. He awakens us. And all the images of scripture is the God coming after us. In Luke 15, there's three that were given. Boom, boom, boom. The shepherd goes looking for the lost sheep. The woman goes, sweeps the house for the lost coin. And the father is sitting on his porch, looking, scanning the horizon, longing for his son to come home. And he runs out to him. 1 John 4, 9 says that we love. Why? Because he first loved us. In other words, you did not find grace. Grace found you. And the beautiful news is it's been trying to find you for all of eternity. It's been coming after you. God shows you and called you to himself. C.S. Lewis in a small book called Christian Reflections says this about the experience of being chased after by God. He said, I never, I never had the experience of looking for God. This is a man who spent years in an intellectual pursuit to try to understand God. Everything we think of of somebody who pursues God, it was C.S. Lewis. And yet his testimony is, I never had the experience of looking for God. Instead, he said, it was the other way around. He was the hunter, or so it seemed to me, and I was the deer. He stalked me, took unerring aim, and fired. In other words, we don't convince God to take us. He comes and gets us. We don't desire him and melt his resistance to us. He desires us and melts our resistance to him. We don't come, overcome his unwillingness to come near us. No, he overcomes our unwillingness to go near him. We don't win him over with our good works and our great faith. Instead, he wins us over to him by his gracious deeds on our behalf. And he brings us where? Before him in his presence because that's what he's always longing for. And so here's the direction direct implication and application for us this morning. You should saunter. You should flit. You should dance. You should skip and hop into God's presence. That's what it means. Hebrews 4 says, you boldly come into God's presence. Why? Because it is the place where he has always longed for you to be. There are too many Christians that seem to have the perception as if God, because you're a sinner and you can still continue to sin and fail, that God is resisting you, that God doesn't listen to your prayers, that he's unwilling to speak to you. Perhaps you've tried to pray, but you perceive that God's heart was cold towards you, that God was giving you the cold shoulder and that his arms were folded and he was giving you a peevish look as if you were just a spoiled child. How many of us read the Bible thinking, not expecting that God is going to speak to us? Because we wonder, why would he ever want to speak to me? 
But the scriptures say that from all of eternity, the heart of God is he chose you to be with him so that you can speak to him and he can speak to you so that you can dwell with God for all of eternity. And he longs for that relationship with you. Imagine this, that in the recesses of God's mind, when he was forming you and making you and considering your form and the outlines of your physical person and your personality, all of these things, he was doing that and he was imagining the day when he would spend all of eternity with you. You, you. And it's his desire that he would know you in this way and that you, he would be able to make himself known to you so that you would delight in the fact that he loves you. So you can be certain that this is God's heart of welcome for you. And so this brings us down to where we're going this morning. We're going to have terrible communion. It's going to come out of a a, a creamer packet. And here's what it means. God longs to be with you at the table. See, so many of you view your Christian life as if you're, like, you're one of those, you think of like church life as if like God's kind of gotten cynical up in heaven with church people. He's going, you know, I've seen these kind of people before. He's going to be here today and he's going to be gone tomorrow. But that's not how God views his people. God has no cynical heart towards you. He knows who his children are. And when God invites us to come in, he doesn't invite us, invite us as orphans like Oliver Twist asking for more gruel, please. That's not what he got. No, he says, he opens up the pantry and he says, here's the pantry of my grace. Come and eat. Here's what it says in Isaiah 55, verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. You know who the people are in my household who do not have to pay for money? It ain't me. I have to pay for the, for the, for the food. There are, but there are four people in my household who never have to pay for food. They come and they eat. They eat everything, like locusts. Because what do they know? They know they are my children and that I long to give them blessings. I long to feed them. And so the first thing they do because they, they come in the house is they go, what's for dinner? What's for lunch? We're eating breakfast and they want to know what's for dinner. This is the heart of a child and it is the heart of your God towards you. And therefore, therefore, God's people come skipping, dancing, bounding with the audacity of a child to a God who has longed for all of eternity to eat with you. So that's what we're doing this morning. To come partake of the, the cup and the bread. And we're remembering this morning what it took for God to bring you home. You say, we, we tend to think of the bread and the cup, sorry, we tend to think of God's election of us as being ethereal. It's, it's in that, that mist, that pre-dawn mist before time began. But do you understand that, that when it says that God called you to make you bring you before himself, that that took on hands and feet? This was not a decision that was cold. This was a decision that was made and given flesh and blood in the person work of Jesus so that you might be brought to him for all of eternity. He sent his son to have his body broken so that runaway sons and daughters can be made sons and daughters again. So that those who are enemies of God might be brought in. So that those who were everything, anything but holy and blameless might be declared righteous in his sight. And so he washes you with the blood of Jesus. Is that you this morning? Have you ever turned your life over to him? In time and space, you see what God does is those he has set aside, he invades their life. 
And the response you ought to see if that has happened is, God, nothing in my hands I bring. I simply come to eat of your grace and your mercy. Is that you? If it is, I invite you to the table. Let's set aside the elements. Heavenly Father, I, I set aside this simple bread and this simple cup, this wafer and this juice that we're using to represent your body and your blood broken for us. That the very nexus of your plan, when your plan took on flesh and blood, became warm and living to us. Oh, set these things aside and, and convince us of your heart for us, God. Use, you say you're with us in this. And so, Spirit of the living God, be, be present with us and extend to us your grace through a wafer and juice. So we set these things aside and we ask that you would move and work in our life. For those this morning who are doubting and suffering, oh Lord, would you, through this bread and this cup, would you convince them of your eternal love for them that's never going away. For the sinner in this place that is fearful that they're the child that has disobeyed one too many times and you're finally like a emotive, overly kind of fickle father will turn your back away. They would see that you have done everything to bring us in. For those who are so aware that they are not blameless, that they would remember and experience the grace anew that you have washed them with the righteousness of Jesus and that in Christ they are lovely in your sight. Oh, would you do this through the precious work of Jesus and press it into us by the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body. This is my body. You're going to find a little packet in the seat back in front of you or somewhere on the floor perhaps. It's going to have two parts to it. The top is a little piece of plastic and you'll be able to get to the small wafer. And the bottom will open up again and get to the juice. Give you just a second. It's a harrowing event. This is the body of Christ broken for you. Not for you faceless and nameless, but for you by name. He broke his body. Take and eat. In the same manner, Jesus also took a cup. And he gave it to his disciples saying, this cup is the, the cup, new cu cup of new covenants, a new agreement, a new relationship with God, which is for many for the remission, for that is for the cleansing of sins. Take and drink. So if you have been washed with the blood of Jesus, this is, this is us remembering that act for you. Let's pray again. Lord, I think the right response, if we've come enough out of the intellectual clouds, but pressed in the unbelievable mysteries, is to say thank you. And so, Lord, I pray that by your grace through this bread and this cup and now as we worship you, that you would arise our hearts and our minds, that by your power of your spirit, you would press in these truths in such a way that we would then rise up and worship to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
Let's stand in worship. Let's stand in worship. <laughs>